Our text this morning is found in John 4, verses 25 through 42. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I'd ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him any, something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For there the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I'd ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Josh Sainer. I'm one of the elders at Grace Christian Fellowship. First, let me say what a great job uh, Drew, or excuse me, Jonah and Brian did in leading us all this morning. Wow, it was good to hear. Especially good to hear all of you. And as we've already said, I can hardly believe it, the day has come, our last meeting. And as excited as I am to move north a couple miles, I'm equally thankful for all the work that God has done in and among us while we've been here in this building. And I think of many of you that have joined us, started attending, and have become members since we've been at this building. So again, we are thankful for what God has done, and we're eagerly excited to see what the Lord will do in a few, a few miles north. Well, today we pick back up in our series in the Gospel of John, and we return to John chapter 4, the second part of the story of the woman at the well. Well, let's first turn to God before we dive into his word. Father, thank you. We thank you that the word of God is powerful, it is active, it is like a double-edged sword. And today I pray, Father, that you would cut through. I pray you'd bring conviction. I pray, Father, that your word would exalt Christ. I pray that it would motivate us all to be evangelists, to be passionate about the good news of Jesus, to tell the lost and dying around us that Jesus offers salvation. And so today, Father, we pray that you would use my feeble words, 
that you would strengthen them and that you would empower all of us to worship you. And we thank you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What words would come to your mind if I told you tomorrow you had to leave everything you have, sail the ocean for five months on an old rickety boat, live in poverty, be criticized by others, befriend cannibals, and live in constant fear of your life? Guessing eager, excited, motivated, probably not the words, rather crazy, nightmare, nah, not doing that. But motivated is exactly what Presbyterian minister John G. Patton was in 1859 when he left his homeland of Scotland and he sailed to the South Seas. See, Patton and his wife were on a mission to bring the gospel of Jesus to the natives of the New Hebrides. Just a few decades prior, two missionaries were murdered and eaten by cannibals on the same island. But that did not deter him. And six months after he arrived, his wife gave birth to their child, Peter Robert Patton, who died within a month. And two weeks later, so did his wife from a sudden onset of pneumonia. And after burying and grieving for his wife and son, Patton worked hard for four years to evangelize the natives. And in a Hollywood movie-style ending, with Patton surrounded by the natives, burning down the buildings they were living in, and a tornado ripping through the island, he was miraculously rescued. But that's not the end of the story. Four years later, and with another wife, Patton again was motivated to evangelize the natives of the New Hebrides, this time on the island of Anoa. And he writes in his autobiography, over the next 15 years, his wife and him saw every single native on the island of Anoa come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Powerful. What motivated Patton to preach the gospel through such great, difficult times? Well, he was passionate for Jesus. He knew that Jesus could change anyone, even cannibals. He recognized that the fields were white, or ripe for harvesting. And he knew that Jesus was not only the savior of Scotch men and women, but savior of the most unlikely savior of the world. So I know we're not all called to preach Christ to cannibals in the farthest reaches of the earth, but we are all called to preach Christ to others. It's part of the normal Christian life. There is no exemption from preaching the gospel if you are a Christian. It's part of our mission statement. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered, and we have four pillars, one being evangelism. And I know many of you here model this well. Many of you regularly tell Jesus, or others about Jesus, regularly inviting your friends to church. Well, some of you can't remember the last time you shared the good news of Jesus with somebody. So today, my hope is simply this, that this passage in John chapter 4 will motivate all of us to preach the gospel to others. And our text this morning gives us four reasons to be motivated to evangelize others. First, because Jesus changes lives. Second, because evangelism motivated Jesus. Third, because the harvest is ripe. 
And fourth, because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Our first point this morning is that we can be motivated to evangelize because Jesus changes lives. Well, who was changed in our story? The Samaritan woman at the well was. And by way of brief recap from last week, you remember that Jesus purposely passed through Samaria on his way to Galilee. And wearied from his long journey, he stopped at Jacob's well just in time for his divine appointment. And at around noon, when his disciples left to the town to get food, the woman at the well, the woman drew or arrived to draw water from the well. And Jesus, being a good evangelist, engaged the woman in dialogue. And having known that she had had five husbands, and currently she was living in sexual sin with another man that she was not married to, he offered her living water, the type of water that could quench the deep longing intimacy that she was looking for in broken relationships. And perceiving that he was a prophet, the woman said to him in verses 25 and 26, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And in his engagement and dialogue with the woman, Jesus exposed her sin and her brokenness, and he offered her living water. And it is implied in the text that she drank living water, that her thirst was quenched, and that she was born again. Jesus the Messiah changed the woman at the well. Well, what did the woman do when she was changed? She evangelized her town. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Most commentators believe that her question, can this be the Christ, is rhetorical in nature. She is saying, yes, it is the Christ. She's saying, I have found the Messiah. Now, John, the author, records a very interesting detail here. She left, in her excitement, she left her water jar. Whether symbolically or because she was excited, she left her water jar and raced back to the town with her shame of the immoral woman being gone to boldly evangelize her town. What do newly saved people often do? In their excitement, they want to tell everybody about Jesus. Well, Pastor Dave, good friend of mine, fellow pastor here, who, by the way, is in sunny Phoenix, while it's gray and dreary and icy here. If you know Dave personally, you know when he is excited about something, he likes to say, it will change your life. When he finds something he likes, when he sees something, a documentary, when he eats food that he likes, he says, it will change your life. I love that. Well, how true it is when we find something that is life-changing, that we're excited how much greater when Jesus changes our lives are we to be excited? This is exactly what the woman at the well did. She was excited and wanted everyone to know. So my question for you today is, are you excited? Are you motivated to evangelize your neighborhood, your community, your town, 
like the woman at the well was. I know often after our born-again experience, maybe the excitement seems to wane. Other times we simply feel like we just don't know what to say. But listen, you don't need a five-point gospel sermon memorized to tell others about Jesus. Simply tell them how Jesus has changed you. You have a story. You have a testimony. I understand we don't all have the conversion experience that the woman at the well had. Some of you here were saved so young, you just have always believed. You don't even know the time. But as a Christian, there's this thing called sanctification. And that means the Holy Spirit is changing us to be more like Christ. Week after week, month after month, year after year, we are being changed to be more like Christ. So that means if you're a person that struggles with impatience, like me, there are many impatient people in this world. If you have been finding strength, if you have been finding patience and peace, you have something to tell others about when you encounter people that are impatient. We live in a world where most people are anxious. If you struggle with anxiety and you have been finding peace that passes understanding, you have a story to tell others how Jesus is giving you peace. So we have much to be excited about. We have been forgiven much so we can be motivated to tell others how Jesus changes lives. The second reason we can be motivated to evangelism or to evangelize is because evangelism motivated Jesus. Look with me at verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, evangelizing the Samaritan woman was food for Jesus. Remember, Jesus was wearied and resting at the well from a long journey. And being fully human, equally as he is fully God, just like you and I would after a long journey, Jesus was tired, he was hungry, and he was thirsty. But the disciples missed the whole interaction. They were off buying food. They did not see the, um, Jesus engage the woman and her new birth. So right as she rushes off, they return and they begin to urge him, Rabbi, eat food, eat. And he says something astonishing. I have food to eat that you do not know about. And in typical disciple fashion, these young men have no clue of what Jesus is talking about. They say, did someone bring him food? Where did he get food from? We went to get food. And I can see it. Jesus explains to them, boys, boys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When I was a young boy, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. And we had neighbors who had a small cottage in northern Michigan, and they graciously would take me each summer I enjoyed escaping the city life. I loved being out in the woods. I especially enjoyed fishing for brook trout in the miles of streams that surrounded their property. 
And each morning I would head out with my fishing pole, my tackle box, and my little styrofoam container of worms. Hours and hours would go by. I wouldn't think twice about eating food. See, that's because I was lost in the moment of fishing. The joy and exhilaration of catching rainbow trout under uh, logs and in deep gravel beds was my food. And in a similar sense, Jesus here is so engaged in the work that he is sent to do. He was so delighted in the new birth and the witness of himself that the woman went back to her town to tell that his uh, desire for food was temporarily suspended. Evangelism motivated Jesus. As one commentator states, Jesus' passion is our salvation. How encouraging. Brothers and sisters, we should be eager to evangelize because fishing for men and women satisfies in a way that physical food never can. When we witness to Christ, or excuse me, to others about Christ, we are engaged in eternal work. We're on mission with Jesus. But what happens so often is we lose that excitement and eagerness because we pursue other worldly pleasures. We pick back up the water pots and we carry around on our heads dirty water. It weighs us down. But when we put away our water pots and we engage in work like evangelism, we find a joy that is unspeakable. It's because we have good news. We have good news to share. And you know why it's good news? It's good news because Jesus did accomplish the work of the one who sent him. When he had finished his earthly ministry, his road ended on a hill where he was beaten and nailed to a cross for your sins and my sins. And as he hung there and as he bore the penalty and the wrath of God that we deserved, John, the same author, records in his book in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus' dying last words, it is finished. And that word finished means in the Greek also, it is accomplished. Jesus accomplished the work of salvation. And that means salvation is possible. It's possible for the worst of sinners. It's possible for the people we least likely think can ever be saved. It's for the outcast. Salvation is possible for John Patton's cannibals. It's possible for the woman at the well. So just like Jesus was motivated to evangelize the lost, so should we be eager to join him in his work of evangelism to tell others about the good news. Well, so far we have looked at two points. Jesus changes lives. And Jesus was motivated to evangelize. Our third reason this morning why we can be motivated to evangelize is because the harvest is ripe. What does a ripe harvest mean? Well, it means imminent results. Imminent results. Look with me at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Jesus appears to be quoting what was a common rural proverb of the day. Do you not say, yet there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? We know barley and wheat were grown in this area and region of Samaria. And Jesus is using this proverb to say, normally, at the end of sowing this grain, it takes about four more months to reap the physical harvest, but not so with the spiritual harvest. The harvest is imminent because the fields are white. When barley and uh, wheat are ripe, they often have a whitish appearance. That's why Jesus says again in verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And Jesus is saying in this context, in the immediate context, this field, the Samaritan village of Sychar is white for harvest. Though the sowing just happened with the Samaritan woman, it's not going to take four more months for the reaping. The harvest is ripe, and it's happening now. Back in verse 30, John tells us they, referring to the Samaritans, went out of the town and were coming to them as they were there at the well. Years back, journalist and travel writer H.V. Morton was sitting by the same Samaritan well, and he observed the following and wrote, As I sat by Jacob's well, a crowd of Arabs came along the road from the direction in which Jesus was looking, and I saw their white garments shining in the sun. Surely Jesus was not speaking of the earthly, but of the heavenly harvest. And as he spoke, I think it likely that he pointed along the road where the Samaritans in their white robes were assembling to hear his words. It's in our field, Spokane, the surrounding towns. The harvest is ripe. There are many thirsty people all around us waiting to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And because the harvest is ripe, it means results are imminent. It means we can be encouraged that if you share the good news of Jesus, some people will believe. Some people will respond. Some people will be born again because the harvest is ripe. What else does a ripe harvest mean? It means some will reap where others have sown. Look with me in verses 36 through 38. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Once again, Jesus is using a proverb. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And before modern machinery was involved in harvesting, it was common for one to sow seed and for another to reap. And the sower here, the word sower that Jesus uses, is a collective metaphor for Moses and all of the prophets ending at John the Baptist 
who we were just introduced in John chapter 3 a few weeks ago. See, for centuries, the prophets in the Old Testament had been sowing the message, a Messiah is coming. One is coming who will rescue you from your sins. This Messiah will bring salvation and deliverance to the world. And we know that the Samaritan woman had this seed sown in her. She says in verse 25, we already read it, I know that Messiah is coming. The seed had been sown. He who is called Christ. And how did Jesus respond? I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the reaper. He is the metaphor of reaper. It's him. He is the one who brought living water to the woman. And now as participants in the new covenant, we will reap in this spiritual harvest where we have not sown. Again, in the immediate context, the disciples had nothing to do with sowing seed with this woman or her town. They were gone. They were off looking for food. But now the disciples are able to rejoice and be part of the benefit and the, the reaping of this town. At the end of our passage, we're told that Jesus and the disciples stayed for two more days and many more believed. They had entered into the labor for that which they did not labor. I remember when I was in college at Arizona State University, my computer science major required me to get through Calculus 3. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had to go through summer classes, like nonstop to get through. Anyhow, in Calc 1, I had befriended a Mormon girl. She was in the same computer science program, and she was open to the biblical gospel. She allowed me to evangelize her, and I would regularly tell her about the good news of Jesus and the power that he has to save sinners. I was sowing the gospel seeds semester after semester. And though she was willing to listen and receptive, she never believed. And one time, about a year later, I saw her again. She said, Josh, I met so-and-so. He was in the same computer science program and we started dating, and he's a Christian. And guess what? I believe the gospel now, and I'm born again. And at first I thought, oh, why didn't you believe when I told you all those years? <laughs> but listen, I had the great privilege of then witnessing her baptism. I, the one who sowed, had the privilege of rejoicing with the one who reaped, her boyfriend who eventually went on to become her husband. Brothers and sisters, reaping where we have not sown should give us great motivation to evangelize. Listen, we're not a one-person um, team. Christianity is not like tennis. It's a team sport where one sows and others reap. Listen, you may reap where others have sown, and you may sow gospel seeds to your unbelieving family and friends, and others may reap, but we can rejoice together. The point is that the harvest is ripe, and whether you are sowing or reaping, people will respond. People will believe. And it doesn't always happen in the timing that we like. It doesn't always happen in the way we would hope for. But the word of God is clear. The harvest is ripe. Results 
are imminent, but action is required. It requires you to reap, to evangelize. It means you have to speak the words of life to a dying world. It requires you to befriend people that are not like you. It requires you to engage in conversation with people you might otherwise normally never do. You need to tell others about the Messiah who has come to give them living water. And again, if you fear evangelizing, you're like the rest of us. You're like me. We're not perfect. But listen, you can be motivated to evangelize knowing that the power for salvation is not in your delivery. It's not in your method. It's not in your construction of words. Instead, the power of salvation comes from God and it is found in the message of the gospel. Our part is to not be ashamed. Paul says in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this morning, let me encourage you Keep evangelizing, even if you don't see fruit. Jesus tells us the harvest is ripe. Believe it by faith. As Dan prayed this morning, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus also says in Matthew 9, it's not an issue that there's not enough people to believe. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We need to labor, so don't give in. Don't stop sowing seed with your family, your friends, your neighbors. Keep telling them about Jesus. I know it's easy to get discouraged. People will shut you down. People will say, I don't want to hear. I have told many about Jesus during my time as a Christian, and few of them have believed. I've invited many people to church. Few have stayed, but some have. Some have believed, and that is the point. People will believe. John G. Patton, the missionary in our story this morning, he never reaped on the first island called Tana. He never saw one soul saved after four years on that island. He gave his wife and his son to that island and nearly gave his life. All of the fruit that he saw was on the other island called Anawa. But you know what happened? Years later, other missionaries entered into his labor and they went back to the island of Tana. And many of the cannibals renounced their murderous ways and they repented and they believed the gospel and they became saved. And then guess what they did? They went and told their friends like the Samaritan woman did about Jesus and more people were saved. Evangelism replicates itself because it tells people about the good news and then they're born again and then they want to go tell their friends and on and on and on. We can be motivated to evangelize because the harvest is ripe and you will reap where you have not sown. So far we have looked at three reasons why we can be motivated. First, because Jesus changes lives. Second, because evangelism motivated Jesus. Third, because the harvest is ripe. Our fourth and final point this morning is we can be motivated to evangelize because Jesus is the savior of the world. Look with me at verses 39 through 42. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. This phrase is only used twice in the New Testament, both by John here in this gospel and then his first epistle. And the title Savior of the world doesn't mean Jesus is going to save all people. It means rather that Jesus will save all sorts and types of people. You have to remember the context of our story. Where is Jesus? He's in Samaria. And as we learned last week, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were part Jewish and part uh, people from other nations that the Assyrians had imported when they conquered the northern ten tribes. So the Jews looked down upon them as lesser. There surely was some level of racism and discrimination happening here. And what's even more scandalous of the day is the fact that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, was speaking with a woman in public. And we know from ancient rabbinic literature that a rabbi was not to speak to a woman in public, not even one's own wife. Wow, it's hardcore. So this was a culture shock for the disciples. When they arrived back from getting food, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one dared ask him, what is he looking for? What is he talking with her about? But because Jesus is Savior of the world, that means he has come to save all sorts of people from all walks of life. Not just the kind of people you and I might be comfortable with. We see this in John, same author, John, in his heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. John writes, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seal, seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world should motivate us to evangelize all people, not just the ones we're comfortable with. It's what motivated the missionary John Patton, to risk his life to bring the gospel to cannibals. The question for all of us is, do we think that Jesus is capable of saving all sorts of people? Intellectually, I imagine most of us here would say yes, but practically, by our actions or our inactions, often our lives don't display that, that we believe that. So I ask you today, are there people in your life that you know that you feel are too lost to evangelize, too broken, too sinful, too unlike you? We do live in a crazy time. I remember growing up, I used to watch black and white reruns of Leave it to Beaver, where husbands and wives slept in different beds 
(laughs) Often, I know because I'm like you, we often think, I wish we could go back to the good old days. The good old days. To the 50s, where everyone seemed to believe in Jesus. Before the 60s and the sexual revolution. Before our time now, where it seems like the world has gone crazy and there's so much confusion with gender and sexuality. Well, listen, if you think that, you need to reject those thoughts because God has sovereignly allowed you to be born today in this world, in this time, and in this culture. Listen, we have a Bible that is for today. It's for now. It's for our time. We have a gospel that is powerful to save anyone on any day from any sin. Do you believe that? Do I really believe that? Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the unlikely, the broken, the despised, and the outcast. But saints, we have a gospel that is powerful today, just as powerful today, to quench the thirst of Spokane as it did for the Samaritan woman and her town 2,000 years ago at Jacob's well. But too often, we just don't say anything because we feel the pressure is on us to close the deal on salvation. So we stay quiet. We don't say anything. But you know what is good news? You and I aren't the saviors of the world. Amen. We didn't die for people's sins. Jesus did. Therefore, we can let Jesus do the saving, and we can do the evangelizing. A simple way to introduce others to Jesus is to invite them to church. The Samaritan woman went, and she invited her town. She said, come and see a man who has told me all that I ever did. So she did give a testimony. She did witness, but she invited them to see Jesus for themselves. And we're told that many believed because of her testimony, but more believed, or their belief was confirmed, when she brought them to see Jesus and hear him for themselves. Look at verse 42. The Samaritan said, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We can all invite people to church. We can all bring others to see and hear Jesus. And though Jesus is not physically here like he was at the well, the Spirit of Christ is present as the body of Christ gathers. So when we invite people to church, we're inviting them to a personal interaction with the Savior of the world. And when unbelievers come to church and they see the body of Christ worshiping, They can see and hear and feel Christ in the church. And as an elder here at GCF, I promise that if you invite your friends, they're going to hear gospel-rich songs, they're going to hear gospel-informed prayers, and they surely are going to hear gospel-centered sermons, whether it's John 3.16 or Leviticus 3.16. And I looked you can get a good gospel sermon out of Leviticus (laughs) 3.16. So when non-Christians come to church, they will hear Christ in the singing and preaching. They will feel Christ when they are welcomed and loved by you. 
So what a good opportunity to invite your friends, non-believers, next week as we meet in a new building. The building of itself is irrelevant. The body of Christ is the church. It's what's inside. But it's a good opportunity to tell people, hey, we're moving to a new church, new built building. We'd love to have you join us. I know I've invited many friends. This is the culture that we want at GCF. We want many inviting their friends, and we all can do it. We all have coworkers. We all live in neighborhoods. We all know people. We have family, kids, teens, college students. You have friends at school, kids that play on sports teams. We all can invite people. But listen, it means that you have to be willing to be uncomfortable You have to be willing to be uncomfortable because sometimes that means people are going to get invited that don't look and sound like you and act like you. But that is okay. Remember, Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, engaged a sexually immoral woman publicly at a well. Brothers and sisters, we all can invite people to church. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, or you are not sure if you're a Christian, if you feel broken, hopeless, if you feel unworthy, if you have no power to change, if you are spiritually thirsty, and if you have been labeled an outcast by others, then let me say you are in the right place. Because that describes all of us here at one point in time. See, no one is born righteous. No one is born worthy of salvation. There has been only one and one man only born worthy. The man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is passionate about salvation. He loves changing broken people. He loves saving unworthy people. All you need to do is humble yourself and repent and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus also died for your sins and that he wants to change you. If you do this, you will be saved. So this morning, I invite you to talk with someone if this describes you. Talk with me. Talk with one of the elders. Talk with the person that brought you. I promise Jesus offers living water and your thirst can be quenched. Well, today I challenged us all to be motivated to evangelize others. We looked at this through four points. From our text, the first was to encourage, we we can be encouraged, uh, excuse me, we can be encouraged to motivate, ah, I can't even read my points here. First, we can be motivated to evangelize because Jesus changes lives. Second, because Jesus was motivated by evangelism. Third, because the harvest is ripe. And fourth, because Jesus is the savior of the world. Let me leave you with a final quote from the missionary John G. Patton that we have been discussing this morning. Hopefully this quote will help motivate you to serve and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ by evangelizing others. When Patton publicly announced that he was going to evangelize the natives of the New Hebrides, one respected elder exclaimed, you will be eaten by cannibals, to which, Mr. which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. 
there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we are humbled by your words. We're humbled by the word of God. We're humbled that you left heaven. You came to earth, became a man to dwell among sinful humanity. And we thank you that you went to the cross and you died and you rose again and that you accomplished salvation, that we may join you for all eternity in worshiping the triune God. This morning, I pray, Father, we would all be motivated to go forth to preach the good news of Jesus to others. And so we thank you. We ask that you would empower us this week to do so. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.